and welcome to the On the Horizon podcast. This podcast is an extension of Horizon Church, a relationally driven, socially conscious, Jesus-centered church located in the heart of Towson. Today we are recording from my house and not at Bryce's because we're under um, restriction to stay home right now due to the coronavirus. Uh, My name is Beth McDonald. I'm your host today. And we're going to be talking with my dear friend, Rhonda Sanko, who is the executive director of Araminta Freedom Initiative. Hey, Rhonda. Hey, Beth. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? Good, good, good. I'm very excited to be here with you. Good. This is the first time we're doing a podcast through Zoom. So hopefully the sound is good, but it's nice to be able to see your face. It's lovely to see yours too. (laughs) If you can hear me, let me know. Okay, I will. Um, So do you, tell me, I already know this, but not everybody does. Um, Who do you live with and how do you spend your days? Okay. (laughs) Well, I uh, live with my husband of nearly 30 years, Tom. A lot of people that listen to this might know him and he's a lot of fun and how we spend our days lately. I have spent my days muting myself on zoom calls (laughs) that people didn't have to listen to my dogs bark. So I'm really hopeful that we can get through this without the mail being delivered. Oh, there you go. All right. Yeah. Yeah. The dog's barking. Well, no, it's the mailman. It's the mail person. Yeah. Banished mine to the basement. So hopefully we won't hear her barking. Okay. (laughs) Good. So you are originally from Texas. Yes. Right? Yes. What part? Um, the Dallas area, Dallas-Fort Worth. Okay. Sort of out a little bit, though. Yeah. Not in the city. So does your heart belong to Texas, like most Texans I know? My heart does belong to Texas, so I, uh, I do miss it. I love it here, and I have a wonderful network of friends here whom I also love, mm-hmm. uh, and, I, and I miss home. So. Sure, sure. Uh, how did you end up in Baltimore, all the way from Texas? Well, um, you know, it gets so hot there in the summer. Yeah. And we, uh, Tom and I adopted three girls, and they were really hyperactive, and managing three hyperactive children in that kind of heat. And one day, it was just too hot. Oh, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> we got to go. <laughs> we go where it's not so hot. Yeah. And, you know, because Maryland is north of Oklahoma, I mistakenly thought it was in New England. (laughs) So, you know, just through a series of events, Tom wound up with an employment opportunity here. And so we moved to the cold New England area known as Maryland. (laughs) That's great. That's great. Yes. I'm Michigan, so most people... Yeah. Have no idea where Michigan is in the whole map. It's just in the middle somewhere. So I get it that you wouldn't have known East Coast geography. Yeah. Well, yeah. I know. We're not cold. We can get cold, but not like New England. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. So I, I didn't know that. I thought it was for, like, you moved for work, which you did, but you chose to come this way. Yeah, we did. So um, you worked for... Before Araminta, which we're going to get to, and I want to spend most of our time talking about that, Mm -hmm. where were you working? 
Um, before I was at Araminta, I actually was at CareFirst for a number of years, and I was in their medical affairs division and ran a really large data-driven population health program. So I had all the non-clinical elements of it. We had a huge team and, you know, a lot of people, a lot of resources, a lot of data, and a lot of impact. So tell me how you transitioned to be the executive director of Araminta. Because it's a very different job. It is a crazy different job, Beth. And um, quick, tell people what Araminta does just before you get into that, so they understand how different it is. Sure. So Araminta is a Baltimore-based nonprofit. We work specifically in the Maryland area, primarily around Baltimore, Baltimore County, and Arundel County. And we actually work very hard and diligently to prevent child sex trafficking which I know people think it doesn't happen, but it does happen with American kiddos. And then for girls that have been trafficked, we put the pieces in place that actually allows them to recover and to stabilize and then to re reconnect with their own mental health because the, the challenge and the abuse that they suffer in, in that environment is uh, just staggering. Right. right, I can imagine the trauma that they, you know, experience. And so what made you go from Care First to Araminta? Because that, that's hard. This is hard work. It is hard work. It really is hard work. Um, you know, I tell people that my dad raised me as his oldest son. And so he, I was the oldest child and he raised me in his business and we just, we built, we built homes is what we did. And I just have this uh, resonance within me for building things and, and creating things. Um, and at a time in, at Care First when there was a lot of transition, actually, you contacted me with the position. <laughs> My fault. Yes, we called <laughs> and said, oh, I just heard about this. I don't know if you know about this. And um, because I love you, I decided to apply. <laughs> And I went through the first interview, which of course I bombed. I just knew I had bombed it. Um, but I think I was different enough as a leader that everybody that I interviewed with wanted somebody else to interview too, to make sure that when they said no to me, that it was the right answer. And somehow I wound up with an offer. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, didn't, I didn't actually see that one coming. <laughs> well, at Behind the scenes, I was not in on the first two interviews because we're friends. I was part of the third because I'm on the board of directors. Yes. But it was unanimous. It was, it was a God thing. Uh, it, it became evident to everyone on the board, those that knew you and those that didn't know you, uh, that you were God's choice for this job. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad you said yes. Well, I am too, but... Uh, why did you say yes? <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I felt called by the time that we actually got to an offer. I, I felt called and I felt that this was a position that would actually call on everything I had ever done before, even though I had such a disparate kind of career. Mm -hmm. the pieces weren't a natural organic flow to my career. And uh, I was also a psychotherapist in the middle. So I forgot to mention. Yeah. Oh, so, you know, it just pulls on everything, and I felt called. And I will say, I have never felt um, a weightiness before in my work that I feel now, just because I do feel called. Yeah. So. 
I love that. That's beautiful. Uh, so, but were you surprised uh, by the mission, by the extent? Um, how did you know you felt called to this? Well, so, you know, what, what I know you know, a lot of people probably don't. Our family actually had um, exposure, firsthand exposure to the impact of of child sex trafficking. So one of our one of our girls actually, you know, went through a rough period, and she got mixed up with a kid that uh, a group of kids using drugs. And as part of belonging to that group, belonging to that family, before she even knew what hit her, she was being trafficked, and just the what that did to our family, what that did to my other girls, what it did to Tom and I, and then what it did to our daughter. I mean, it just to have that, to have that front row view, I just don't want any family or any child to go through that. Right. right. So, you know, I, I want to build the solution. I want right. to build the solution. Right. That's, and your daughter is out of that. and Yes, she is. And she's going to be okay. Yeah. But I also have a front row view of what it takes to heal. So, I mean, she, you know, she grew up in a really loving family. Uh, some might say spoiled, like her, her sisters might say spoiled. <laughs> but all older, so I'm a youngest. So I can say all older siblings say the little one is spoiled. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so it, that, that could be said. But I mean, she just grew up with a lot of resource around her. And still this happened. Mm -hmm. And so I see other kids that don't necessarily have all the opportunities that, that she's had to, to recover. And they deserve it. You know, they deserve it every bit as much. They deserve to be safe. They deserve to go on to a fulfilling or rewarding life, you know, that of their own design. Right. So. So I feel, has that given you a, like a fire in your belly beyond what maybe somebody else? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it, it has. And it also has given me a picture of kind of the tenderness with which you have to approach people. Sure. As well as how long you have to be ready to be patient, because that kind of a psychological recovery process, mm -hmm. that's not fast, even though sometimes these girls look seriously tough and they look like they got it, you know, inside. There's, a, there's still, there's been tremendous wounding. So, yes, it gives me a fire in my belly, to use your, your language. Not right, mine. right. <laughs> So I want to get into what Aramin, how Araminta comes alongside of a child who's been tra sex trafficked, but what makes a child vulnerable to this? How, how does this start? How does it start? I mean, it can start in so many ways, Beth, and there's no, there's no just one single path, you know? Uh, my own daughter started using drugs and wanted to belong. I mean, she really needed to belong. Um, and so that was the path. Unfortunately, in so many cases, it actually starts in the home. Mm. So 
a lot of girls that are trafficked have first been sexually abused in the home. And I, I went to a data, a data webinar this week. And one of the things that they were talking about, they were giving numbers. So, and it's hard, you know, this is such a kind of secretive crime. It's hard to get really solid numbers. Sure. However, this was the, you know, the main organization that tracks uh, trafficking and sex trafficking. And they, the numbers that they gave in terms of the question was, what is the, um, I'm going to use the word victim, because when you're a kid and it's happening, you are being victimized. So what was the victim's uh, relationship with their trafficker in most instances? And a familial relationship, so someone in your family was twice what it was for any other kind of relationship. Right. So it's just staggering how it can happen. Yeah. And a lot of times it's in exchange for food or rent or money or drugs or, you know, whatever the need is in the family. So Sure, sure. Wow. Yeah. So, so many people see it as, people that I talk to about the issue assume it's, honestly assume it's illegal immigrants that have come in. Oh been brought in for this reason, but you're saying it's U.S. citizens' kids. Yeah, so this uh, this particular group, the numbers that they were reporting on, and they were reporting at this point on specifically on child sex trafficking, and of the reports that they receive, and again, this is the national hotline for this, 77% mm -hmm. uh, were U.S. kids. Yeah. So you know, your next door neighbor right? situation. I think that's shocking for people. It is. And it, you know, the other piece, Beth, is when we are at church, when we get, when we used to get to go to church. <laughs> we also used to be in the same room together. Yes, exactly. I mean, when you left church, you could drive in multiple directions, 10 minutes or less. Right. You would be in a hotbed of activity. So it's our church is in Towson, Maryland, which is a suburban city. Yeah. It yeah. is not in downtown Baltimore. We're, we're out in the suburbs. And it's, so you're saying it's out in the suburbs. Yeah. But the truth is, is the, you know, the more I learn, the more I realize you could probably say that about most churches hmm. that you could drive 10 minutes or less. Right. Right. Why do you think so many people don't seem to know about it? I know it has come into more. Mm -hmm. of the public awareness, but still, why do you, there's still quite a few people that don't quite see it as a big issue. Yeah, I mean, it's such a reprehensible crime right? that you, it's like, like it can't possibly be true. Yeah, it right. It can't possibly be true. can't like wrap our heads around it. Yeah, it's very, very hard to wrap your head around. And I mean, when it was happening with our own child, it was hard to see. There were so many there were so many things not right mm -hmm. at that point, but that was so awful. It couldn't possibly be. Right. Right. So I just think it's very hard to contemplate. Yeah. So I don't know. I yeah. I had a better answer. No. no, no, no. And, it, and it also, I mean, so the fourth, we don't see it on the street as much, Right. A lot of it happens literally out of a home situation or it happens online. Right. 
a lot of it. And so seeing a child on the street who's available, that happens less and less. Mm -hmm. And the internet literally makes it much easier to be secretive and sneaky about the whole thing. Sure. So, so tell me um, about Araminta, how it enters in and helps a survivor come out of this. Sure, sure. Um, so, so a child is being trafficked. How does that child even yeah. get from there to you? How do they get from there to us? Well, in Baltimore, we actually have a wonderful police force that actually works very hard. They do a lot of training and they've moved from a model of this is a prostitute that needs to be arrested to this is a, this is a kid being victimized. Which, which is fairly new legislation, right? It is. Within yeah. the last, what, 10 years that's changed? Yeah, absolutely. So probably last six or seven years. So it's a radical shift, actually, that's occurring in society mm -hmm. of actually moving from seeing people as, um, you know, choosing to participate in this right. to actually being victims that need services around them. So we get a fair number of referrals through the Department of Social Services, kids that have gone into the foster system. We get referrals from the police. We get referrals from the FBI. Mm -hmm. There are uh, sister nonprofits that we work with that we also get referrals from. We can, we can, we can uh, work with them along with the other nonprofits who are also helping get some resources around them. So. You know, we're, we're a part of both a state task force as well as a citywide collaborative. Okay. And so there, it's actually a very rich network of, of both, you know, government funded and nonprofits that work together. Mm -hmm. so, so you got refer for referral, mm -hmm. uh, let's say a 15 year old girl. Yeah. What, and then what happens? Then what happens? So we have just a wonderful survivor services staff. And so what will happen is we'll go out and meet with the girl and just talk about the program and make sure that she understands, you know, what it is, what it isn't. I mean, we don't have housing. It's, it is a relationship. It's a safe relationship. It's not their social worker. It's not their therapist. It's not their mom. It's just somebody that's going to care about them. And it's a one-to-one -one relationship. So we go out and we meet with the girl and, you know, most of them are interested, fortunately, in moving forward with it. And so we also, on a separate, you know, like sort of prong of activity, we have ongoing training where we're, we're training advocates and we're training mentors who are ready to become a mentor to a girl. And so we try to keep a certain amount of bandwidth in that because what it is, is if one chooses to be a mentor to somebody, it's a minimum of a one-year commitment. Uh, we ask that you have a connection with your, with your mentee. That's what we call the survivors. Mm -hmm. we, we ask that you have a connection every week and that you actually have a face-to-face -face encounter activity, outing at least twice a month. And so you're building a relationship, you're committing to a relationship. So once the girl has agreed that she would like to do it, because we've done such, my dog's about to bark here, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, because we've come to know the mentors, you know, through the training, 
through the just interview process and getting to know them, we actually look at, okay, who's available to become a mentor to this girl and who has sort of common interest. Mm -hmm. And then it's a little bit of a matchmaking process. Mm -hmm. So we'll set up a meeting where a potential mentor and a young lady get to, you know, they get to meet and just kind of, you know, have coffee and feel each other out and see if they have any, any common interest at all. Mm -hmm. It's always the girl's choice though, if this is the one or not. And so I know that's really important to Aaron mentioned that the girls have that agency, that choice, because they have spent all this time with no choice. Right, right. And this is a safe way to begin to exercise that and, and develop it if they haven't had it. So yeah, so the girl gets to choose and then it's kind of off to the races. They uh, they get to have their outings and uh, every month Araminta actually sponsors an outing. So we put something together that they're all invited to. Many of them come. It's a wonderful way of also having sort of a larger community of survivors. It's to help break down that sense of isolation that is a part of the trap that keeps sure. kids trapped in it. So. Um, it's pretty interesting. Most of the relationships, many of the relationships, I'll say, continue well beyond a year, well beyond a year, and they become family of sorts mm -hmm. to each other. So it's it's quite lovely to. So are most of the girls in foster care? Have they are they back in their own family's home? I know some of them have aged out of foster care and have their own homes. It's really a mix, Beth, and it, and it depends on whether they're 18 and over or 18 and under by that time. So we do work, we'll, we'll take young ladies up to the age of 25 okay. if they were trafficked while they were young. Gotcha. So because, you know, you've raised kids, the development process goes on much, you know, you're, you're a teenager much longer than you're. Right. <laughs> and particularly if you've suffered trauma as a teenager, yeah. you kind of get stuck there for a while. Yeah. Yeah, there's some models that say when you're dealing with any child who's suffered trauma, any child, any kind of trauma, mm -hmm. you can assume that their developmental age is about half of their actual, you know, physical age. So interesting. Yeah. 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 So you encourage these mentor-mentee relationships. Um, you encourage um, the community, even among the mentors and mentees all get together and kind of become friends and family that way. What, what do you do about a girl who's like right now during the, we're in this time of coronavirus. Yeah. Some of our survivors have lost a job or, um, right. are financially it's hitting people financially. What, what does it look like for Aramanta to then? Well, so, uh, well, you say then, like we've done this before. We haven't actually done it <laughs> now, right? a bit before. You're figuring out on the fly here. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so uh, one of the things we're doing, we've really increased our contact with all of our survivors because we cannot allow a, a sense of isolation to set up, set in. That's one of the things that was always used really to keep girls in, in place by a trafficker. They'll say, uh, nobody cares about you and they say it over and over to the point girl starts thinking nobody cares about me and they will also say nobody wants you after and I'm using air quotes here what you've done right so 
so attending to that sense of isolation is really important. We're also doing a lot of online virtual kinds of activities and, you know, we're having a, like a painting workshop this weekend, which will be kind of fun. Um, but we are also changing some of our policies right now. So these kids, uh, many of them have, well, all of them have had their hours reduced at their jobs. Sure. And we don't know how long this will go on. And it was really, it was actually the first week of social distancing when we started hearing from some of our young ladies that are actually doing pretty well. Mm -hmm. But we started hearing, I got money for food or money for rent. And um, I know Governor Hogan was good enough to put evictions on hold. Mm -hmm. But we also don't want to see these young ladies come out of this period with just a mountain of debt that they wouldn't be able to they wouldn't be able to get out from under and we don't want anything that would put them in the kind of economic jeopardy that they might go back to what they know earns money, mm -hmm. you know, regardless of, of uh, social circumstances. So we've put together a program or we're in the midst of putting together a program of microfunding where we will pay up to half of their rent and half of their utilities and we're also providing food so for the next couple of months. I don't, of course, we don't know how long we'll need to provide it, but immediately we're, we're setting up a fund for three months and hoping by that time the whole economy's right. rebound. Right. <laughs> we'll be back to some kind of normal. And yeah. you're, you're literally people are delivering food to their door and you know, picking up Medicaid prescriptions for them and that kind of thing. Yeah, a couple of them have some young children and we don't want those we don't want them taking kids into the grocery store and exposing themselves and exposing their children and so uh we are literally de making deliveries as you said. So, and delivering art projects and delivering school packages and I I have to say Beth, I'm really proud. A lot of our young ladies are in school. Oh, I love that. Yes. Or they've graduated from right. some kind of a program where they can go on and create a meaningful life. So uh, I'm just so proud of them. Yeah, it should be. Well, it sounds like just like many of us are taking care of our people. We're, we're maybe getting groceries for a family member or, or caring in some way at this time for our people. You are, and the mentors are their people. Yeah. Caring for them at this time. Yeah, we are. We're their family, we're their, we're their community. And I, I wish I could like share text mess messages and things like that with you guys, but we routinely get messages that just say, thank you for being there. Thank you for the way that you've cared about us. Thank you for not letting us, you know, basically feel abandoned. It right. matters. It really matters. It does. It does. Um, so you also, Araminta, I say you, Araminta also, in addition to having that mentorship program, advocates, people that help them drive to appointments, um, get the, them to the doctor's appointment. There's people that help them navigate social services and all of, all of that part of living for them. There's also an education part that Araminta does to educate the public, to educate volunteers. Tell me about that. Okay. So we also do have a whole education prong, you know, of activity. So 
which is wonderful. We have programs that we take into the high schools and the junior highs for the students. Mm -hmm. We also have programs that we offer in the school systems to the teachers, administration. Ideally, we begin to get in front of bus drivers, mm. the lunch ladies. I mean, anybody that lays eyes on these kids, right? So we have um, courses that we offer for professionals. So for social workers and, and licensed therapists that give out CEUs. So we've got that, that area. We also have a lot of church-related um, presentations that we do both for the parents as well as for kids. Yeah. And um, we've started something that's kind of interesting. If you have the parents in one room and the kids in another room, you know, have you seen that live voting kind of software? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So. Oh, I bet that's fascinating. That's fascinating. Great for parents. And it's a way to give parents kind of a snapshot of what's actually happening with kids without their own, their own children being identified, you know, being identified to them. Right. Once is what, but it certainly leads to some very meaningful conversations. Right you know, in the families. So that's a wonderful thing. Another program that we're really proud of this, uh, the team has created what is called a demand response presentation. And it is to curb demand. It's to look at what creates demand right? and how do we address it, especially within the church. So, so tell me, tell me a little bit about prevention. Well, that demand response presentation. Yeah, so the demand response, I mean, especially in this digital age, right? We all live, it's a, in some ways, depersonalized mm -hmm. age. And one of the best things that we can do to begin to help curb demand is to personalize who is being bought right. with the buyer right and um it's it's much harder to just move forward with that kind of activity when you when you're seeing this is a person this is a human this is a soul right so i know i had a um a friend in a conversation about aramantic because of being on the board and and her assumption was that the buyers are I don't know, nasty homeless men in the city or something. I mean, I, it was like a, this stereotype of a particular demographic area. Um, but that's not true. No, that's not true. Um, one source that I've seen, and I, they did not cite their source, but I've also heard this backed up some. So one source was said that the majority of buyers are, you know, white men in their forties who make over a hundred thousand each year. Yeah. So it's, you know, men with discretionary income. And we certainly know that in, in Maryland in particular, we have a lot of really high income counties that abut very poverty stricken, you sure. know, poverty stricken counties. And so where you have that kind of discretionary income bump up against that kind of need, you just have a, Mm. sort of perfect storm of conditions. Right, right. So that prevention is really that all of us are 
mm. responsible on some level to yeah. prevent it from happening. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's, you know, and there's work to be done there. I mean, how do we help kind of break that down so that people have something that they can, you know, mm -hmm. if I walk away, I say, I can do this thing. I can be aware of this phone number and have it plugged into my cell phone. I can, you know, I can know that this is what it looks like when I'm traveling mm -hmm. in a hotel, if I see these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. uh, or if I have, you know, if I'm a boss and I have employees and they report certain things, mm -hmm. I need to be cognizant that there may need to be action taken there. Right. And there's a, there's a hotline like a national hotline that you can call, right? There is, and I don't have the number right in front of me. So. We'll get it and put, make sure it's in the notes or in the okay in the that section somewhere. We'll find it because I know I became more aware. I was at the zoo with my grandson and saw a very young looking girl with an older man that just was not father daughter. Yeah. Uh, it made me really uncomfortable. Yeah, uh, I didn't. I didn't call the number because you feel like I don't know, but it just it makes you more aware of those. Yeah, and I would say to that, Beth. I mean, uh, next time if something like that should happen, call. Mm -hmm. Go ahead and make the call because right. you don't have to have all of the information yeah. to make the call. It opens a case, and you never know when that case gets you know, they start putting the pieces together. Right. And so even if you don't have everything, you can still make the call. Sure. Sure. No, that's good. That's really good. And I do have to say what, what that organization does is they actually have, um, they have for every jurisdiction in the country, they know how that law enforcement jurisdiction wants them to interact. So okay. they know what's the detail level that, that you need to have before you contact us to send us out sure. looking for something. And this is what we will do. This is how department of social services actually ties in with the police force and how, you know, this is how our system works. And so it's right. actually very well developed. Right. That's, that, that's really good to know. Um, so this is heavy work for you. This is emotionally heavy. Uh, it's a lot. It's a, it's a bigger issue then you can accomplish, take care of in a day. <laughs> but I feel like you like working there. You love working there. Tell me why, how, how do you love this work? Well, you know, one of the most important things for people is that they feel that their work matters, mm -hmm. right? That their work is meaningful and that it brings value. And even on a bad day, this work matters. Right. It really does. And lives are changed. And it's a way to help uh, tie together a network of people that want to help with people that would benefit from being helped. And it's a way to lean into preventing a crime. I mean, when I, and, and when I think about, uh, when, I, when I really pause and think about trafficking and what it really means and what it really is, I mean, that is the core of evilness itself. And how do we, how do we be a, a civil society when there's this whole underpinning 
of that level of evilness going on because wherever you have trafficking, you tend to have drugs, Mm -hmm. you tend to have guns, you tend to have violence, you tend to have just all of the ugly things in society. And so um, it just matters. You're, you're, you're bringing, you literally are just pouring into that darkness. It's maybe small bits of light there, but I don't know. Do you feel like it's changed you working there? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in, in, yeah. In, in what ways? Yeah. I mean, I think I'm more compassionate with people. I mean, I was reasonably compassionate before, but um, I will tell you that it's made me just realize we go along and we, we see people with our eyes and we evaluate people by what we see and what we experience and just what people, you know, how people appear, what we see is so very different from what's really happening inside of them. And um, I don't know, it, it's, it's, it's just enhanced my respect for the, the human soul and spirit and yearning toward health and, and beauty and love. And, you know, in the midst of all these awful things that have happened to these, these girls, they still, you know, they, they laugh and they want fuzzy house slippers for Christmas and they, you know, they like glitter and, you know, I mean, they're, they're girls. They're still girls. Yeah, they're girls. Still girls. Yeah. Still children. Yeah. You mentioned beauty. I know you're creative, you're artistic. <laughs> uh, do, you, do you think that informs how you do this work, how you lead? Um, yeah, I, I guess it does. I mean, I'm, uh, I, I pursue creativity. I'm, I'm not terribly good at any anything I do <laughs> yet I don't let that slow you me down you are very artistic I've seen some of your work you are you are artistic you are well so so I, I rarely have a sense of where I actually want some a, a piece of work to go and even if I did it's not going to land there anyway and so I've learned to really kind of enjoy the process and allow the thing to emerge and I think that I bring that to this work because you know in my mind's eye we we completely shut down trafficking. Mm-hmm. That's the goal. We right. shut it down. We're not having to do recovery work and restoration work anymore because we've shut it down. And you know, that's not where that's just not where we are as a society. And that's I don't know why, but that's that's where we are. And so it just brings me to a place of when I, I see our programs with our girls and I see girls and I see how they develop, I would just love to wrap my arms around them and just heal them right there, right then that day. And it's not going to happen. And so I have to sit back and just enjoy the beauty of what's emerging. Mm. Just have to, just have to enjoy it and know that sometime, I mean, we do lose girls sometimes, sometimes they do go back. And, and isn't there a statistic they go back maybe five times before yeah. they actually come out? Five or six times. Mm-hmm. So come out or die. Mm-hmm. There's the average lifespan once somebody's been pulled into trafficking, trafficking is seven years. Wow. So it's imperative that we get them out. Yes. Yeah. How does your faith inform how you lead? Well, and how you do this work? 
Yeah, I mean, there are so many days where it's just, God, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do here. This is huge and this is awful and it's hard. And this is not your heart for, for right. kids. It's not your heart for anybody. No, no. So the traffickers or the buyers also. Right. And so just knowing that it is still, it's God's, it's God's work, you know, where the, the hands and the feet and on the days where I say, I just can't do it. I don't know what to do. I let myself say that and share that with God. And right. then pretty soon I at least know one thing I can do next. And then that leads to the next thing. So, you know, you mentioned that yeah. uh, God cares about the trafficker too. Mm -hmm. Is that, I know that's something that's a little different about Araminta from the very beginning. Their mission was that the person who is trafficked, but also the trafficker mm -hmm. loved by God mm -hmm. and he wants more for them. Is, was that hard for you since your daughter had been trafficked? Yeah. Theory, I can say that because I haven't had that intimate experience with it. Yeah. Uh, yes, that is hard. Uh, we do believe in justice. Mm -hmm. We do believe in justice. And, you know, uh, my daughter's worst, I don't know, uh, trafficker is in prison and we testified and, right. and I'm glad that he's in prison. Uh, it would be my dream that his soul would heal mm -hmm. and that he would never engage again like that i mean right right that's a tough one yeah it is it's a tough one uh i would think that your faith would help you get to the point where you want him healed and that that would play a part in that yeah it does it really does it it does and beth you know there was a there was a funny uh, thing. You know this story. Um, I drive a very small car. I drive a really cute little car. <laughs> <laughs> it turns out that a couple of years ago for an entire month, I drove around without knowing it. And I had a four-foot python in the car with me. <laughs> no, I know. It's creepy. <laughs> And I don't like snakes. I didn't put it there. <laughs> I never knew it was there. But I have to say, so many times, it's like, God, why did you show me I'm that protected? Mm. Why did you show me that? Because I never knew. Right, right. And I happen to know when it went in, and I know the day I found it. Right. I just never knew. And that level of protection, uh, of just, yeah. It's clearly God, you know, I'm very stubborn and I really need big signs. <laughs> I'll take that as a big sign. Yeah. And so I don't know, it just, it helps me want to lean into the fight. It helps me say I'm protected. Who else has a story like that? It's a horrible story. <laughs> but, it, but it's a, a, a story that shows you God knows you. He's in the details. Mm-hmm. 
protecting, he wants you to know he's protecting you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he really did with that one. So um, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. What a beautiful story. So I know um, now during COVID, we talked about how you're reaching out to the survivors now. Uh, in what ways are girls that are trafficked or children that are trafficked particularly vulnerable right now during this? Well, uh, <laughs> so a lot of the activity appears to have gone online right now. Um, one of the war, one of the concerns, and this is also a concern for the um, for groups that work with domestic violence. Mm -hmm. Violence tends to go up, mm -hmm. and these kids certainly are subjected to violence. And so, violence does tend to go up whenever any group is under economic distress like that. And right now, they don't necessarily have the ability to be away from their trafficker or their, you know, whoever is controlling them. They don't have even those windows to get away because of social distancing and the stay at home orders and things. So they have fewer opportunities to access an escape route if they, if they were in that place or to have a neighbor call and say, I don't know what it is. There's just something weird going on. Right. You know, it's just less likely to happen right now. So do you think when the stay-at-home, uh, I don't know, what is it, a law? Stay-at-home. Yeah, order. Order, there you go. Is lifted that, that there's going to be a bunch of kids? There is a, uh, yeah, so the group that was speaking, the group that runs this hotline, they, they're expecting quite a spike in calls when the orders are lifted and people start getting back together. Um, so right now, with it primarily being online, it's pretty hard to pretty hard to track. I mean, you're not necessarily going to notice anything weird in your neighborhood, right? So it is my prayer. I mean, one of the one of the opportunities is when the medical community sees kids. Sure. There's been a lot of training in the last couple of years about this is what it looks like, and these are questions that you'll want to ask and have no one else in the room with the girl um, when you ask them. And it is my prayer that through COVID that some of these kids start to float up by way of the medical community. Mm -hmm. So we, you know, ask the, ask the team to make sure that we have plenty of mentors trained and ready right. and that, that, we never have a girl come in and we're like, I'm just sorry, we can't help you. We don't have anyone. Right. So we also meet a lot of tangible needs. I should say that not just during COVID, COVID, but a lot of food, clothes, school supplies, um, right. toiletries, cleaning products. So. Sure. Cause when they come out of trafficking, they come out with the clothes on their back and nothing else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the clothes on the back we want to replace quickly, usually. So, yeah. yeah. So, there's how, a lot to need. How can we? I'm sure people listening, hearts are being tugged and wanting to help. How can we help Araminta now, right now? Well, again, we are continuously needing new people coming in. We need new, uh, new mentors, new advocates, just people contributing and supporting. 
we this year are are in order to fund all of our programs, both the educational programs and the survivor programs. We you, we've had a race for the last I don't know five or six years. It's a five k and a ten k. Right. Right. So it has gone virtual, right? So we're all in our little planning groups and going, oh, we may not be able to have a thousand people together in the, you know, at Druid Hill Park on the ninth. And then it's like, oh, we could only have 10 people. Well, now what are we going to do? Because the funding's so important for all the programs. So we've decided to have a virtual race this year and which a lot of the organizations are doing. I'm, I'm excited about it. Charm City Run has been wonderful to help us switch from a regular run to a virtual run. And so what we'll do is we're still doing all of our, we're getting teams together and we're gonna have a couple of competitions and then everybody gets to run that morning. And we'll probably have it for the whole week, but people get to run, they can post their pictures and their t-shirts on social media with us. They can actually, if they're using an app like Map My Run, they can put their time, they can put their course, and it's just fun. It's still community. Yeah. It's still community. But because we're not all together in the park this year, it also opened the opportunity for an unrun. So <laughs> this year it's called a run unrun. And that is for people that are never going to run, but they still want to participate and have a team. And they can participate that morning and they can post to social media in their t-shirt from their sofa if that's what they want to do. So yeah, it's a lot of fun. You sign up for the run or on run, you still get a shirt. You still get a t-shirt. Yes. I love my race t-shirts. Yes. Yeah. So that, so we're going to give the website in a minute, but they can go on there. Um, you're still doing training if somebody wants to be a mentor, wants to be involved. Yep. We're, we've gone virtual. Zoom training. Mm -hmm. Sign up for the race. Mm -hmm. um, virtual race, runner and run. You can donate. You um, can, yep. Or a monthly donation. Yeah. Yeah. So you can still donate. Normally we, we accept a lot of goods right now. We're not, we're actually, if the goods we're providing, we're ordering and trying to minimize the number of hands that touch them just right now. Right. So there's specifically a link to donate specific to survivor needs on our webpage as well. <laughs> so, or general donation. Food for them or mm -hmm. whatever they mm -hmm. Right. Right. Okay, good. So there's different. Yeah. And so to, to be really transparent about where we are with all of this, what we do with donations will morph as the needs change. Right. And so, um, but, but our whole purpose is to help, you know, support these survivors. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, what are you hoping for the future of Araminta? Hmm. Well, you know, my big dream is that we're not needed. <laughs> That's my big dream. Work yourself out of a job. Yes, yes. But, I mean, I'd love for us to be in every school district, you know. I'd love to be expand our programming, particularly in the really high-risk school districts. And there are some very high-risk school districts in Maryland. 
uh, particularly around Baltimore. My dream is that we expand our uh, we expand our programs for survivors so that there's a much deeper healing and that earlier they're able to come to peace and resolution. I mean, they have a rich spiritual journey, yeah. you know, and so just to help them really tap into that as early in the healing process as they possibly can. I would love to see us have an, um, an expanded or like to sponsor uh, an intensive foster program within the church community so that the foster families that might take some of these kids in also have community around them. So, you know, I mean, isn't the, the hope. So right now, if a child comes out of trafficking, mm -hmm. they're put into just a foster care home or a children's home yeah. necessarily equipped for their specific yeah. needs. So that the hope is they'll be training for foster care families that specifically can take trafficked children. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because they're unique. Yeah. You know, there's some unique sure. challenges there, I guess, or opportunities. I've also heard you talk about, um, traditionally we've worked with girls, but there are a yeah. few number of boys that are trafficked as well that we want to kind of expand into. Yeah. So there's nobody servicing boys that have been trafficked right. and uh, that in Baltimore. And so that has to be corrected. Now, identifying boys that are being trafficked is a little bit harder mm -hmm. in our just historical kind of stereotypical view of men is not that that's a, a victim role. So, but it is, and they deserve protection too, and they deserve to not sell their bodies to keep a roof over their heads. Yeah. So maybe some LGBTQ. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. So we want to help Araminta, everyone. <laughs> there, you guys are doing such good work. What is feeding your soul right now? Mm. What do you do to fill yourself back up? Oh, Beth. Uh, I mean, I look to my friends a lot. You know, I, I, I really need my friendships. I, I miss going to church, but I'm glad that we're able to do things online together. I, it's kind of changed what it looks like to me to, to take care of my own soul. I used to go off and get into creative projects and stay up half the night. And, you know, now it doesn't, uh, because there's so much that needs to be done just to make sure that we're being good stewards of the resources that we do have. It's more like, like in between, if I find that my attention is wandering, just go put a wash of some color on some project. And right. then, you know, and that kind of gets me going again. And then I come back to the work at hand. Um, and staying actually close to the work right now is more important and is more resonant for my soul than than wandering off into <laughs> hours of hours of projects thank you so much for coming on here and for sharing with us and thank you for the work you're doing oh beth i'm so fortunate and thank you for calling me about the job <laughs> <laughs> you're not blaming me no nope, no nope. <laughs>
really are being the hands of feet and feet of Jesus right now. And uh, I so appreciate that about you. Um, listen, you'd like more information about Araminta Freedom Initiative, the work they're doing, the training, whether you want to donate or participate in the virtual race. It's all that information is available on their website, which is AramintaFreedom.org, which is A-R-A-M-I-N-T-A. F-R-E-E-D-O-M dot org. And by the way, we forgot to mention that Araminta comes from Harriet Tubman. It was her original name. Right, her birth name. Her birth name. And so she is kind of an icon for us of her journey out of, not only journey out of slavery into freedom, but going back and rescuing more. Yeah, not being willing to leave people behind. Right. Right. And if you'd like to know more about Horizon Church, where Rhonda and I go, that and our two pastors were founders. Yeah. Ryan, we're founders of Aramental Freedom Initiative 10 years ago. Check out our website at horizontowson.com. We are a community where you will be loved and have opportunities to be loved. Thank you for joining us on the Horizon. <laughs>